Hello everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of The Intersection, a series on the Inkytel podcast where we discuss topics relating to the intersection of technology and national security. I'm your host, Steve Boucher, and we're thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Amy Ziegart, the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Professor of Political Science by courtesy at Stanford University, and a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Among her five books is the bestseller, uh, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, which was published in February of this year. This book gives an overview of intelligence basics and life inside America's intelligence agencies, discusses how technology is changing the nature of intelligence, and explores the issues of traitors, congressional oversight, and covert action. I can't think of uh, a person more suited to uh, talk about the intersection of technology and national security. So we're thrilled to have Amy with us today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much, Steve, for having me on. Great. So uh, uh, we're going to start, as usual, by framing this uh, uh, conversation by talking about the great power competition that's existing in the world today between the U.S., uh, uh, China, and Russia to shape worldwide security infrastructures, trade practices, investment regimes, and technology developments. But in order to uh, uh, give our listeners uh, some context for where you're coming from, Amy, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to where you are today. What led me to where I am today? Yeah. The answer is a, an improbable and circuitous route. So just a little well, that, bit. That, that's, that's great. I, I think I think people love to to hear their stories because everyone thinks you know life is a very straight line journey, and, and I think we all know it's not. <laughs> no. So I grew up uh, in the hotbed of international relations, at Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, okay. I uh, went to a hippie school on a horse farm, uh, which turned out to be a great place if you were either A, really a super nerd like me, or B, kicked out of every other school in town. Um, and so I actually started studying international politics because I was watching TV and saw Deng Xiaoping visit the U.S. So I became fascinated by China, uh, started taking Chinese lessons in middle school, ended up studying wow. Chinese in college, living in, in Beijing and Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, so I was originally a China person, fascinated by all things China, starting in the 70s. Um, I did a stint uh, at McKinsey, then ended up uh, skipping the business section of the newspaper to start focusing on foreign policy. That's a good guide of what your day job should be. Uh, so I went to graduate school at Stanford, uh, stumbled into a class uh, the first day of my PhD program because I had heard there was a very left-wing professor teaching with a very right-wing professor, at least that was the word on the street, uh, and I wanted to understand who these people were. And uh, one of the professors was a woman named Condoleezza Rice. And she became my doctoral advisor. And that's how I ended up studying national security organizations. And that's uh, what set me on my trajectory to come back to Stanford. Great. So uh, uh, you've been at Stanford for a number of years. You're, you're, you're very focused and influential in, in this area. What caused you to become an author? And, and why did you decide you wanted to write uh, your most recent book? Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. So this book was more than 10 years in the making. It started off as a different okay. book, Steve. The original <laughs> book um, began when I was a professor at UCLA, and I pulled my students. I was teaching a class on intelligence, and I pulled my students about what they knew and where they learned it from, and the answer was they didn't know anything, and what they knew they learned from the movies. Uh, yep. And uh, statistically significant results, those who watched a lot of spy-themed entertainment were much more likely to believe uh, that enhanced interrogation techniques like waterboarding, et cetera, were the right thing to do. Uh, and then I did national polls and I found the same thing. And the more I looked, the more I became concerned that spy-themed entertainment had become adult education. So I originally set out to write Intelligence 101 to use as a textbook. 
And then I moved to Stanford and the world changed and I became enmeshed in technology. And so then what I realized I needed to write was Intelligence 2.0, how emerging technologies are transforming the intelligence landscape. So it took a long time to get here, but I'm glad I, I tell my editors I'm glad I waited this long because it turned out to be a more interesting book. Well, I, I can't tell you how many different times we've been talking about technology that we've discovered to one of the agencies we're working with. And we use an analogy of it's like what you saw in the Matrix or it's like what you saw in this movie or, you know, read about in, in this uh, uh, popular novel, because it really does. Uh, 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 it anchors a lot of people's impressions of intelligence and, and, and intelligence technologies. As you know, the Q in our name comes from the character in uh, uh, the James Bond movies. Right. So so who are we to say that? Uh, 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 we shouldn't focus on how spying is portrayed in, in fiction in Hollywood. Um, but what's uh, uh, for our readers that haven't, or for our listeners that haven't had a chance to read your book, uh, uh, what is your takeaway about um, uh, how uh, 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 intelligence is portrayed in, in fiction in Hollywood and, and how it does work in real life? What is the difference there that you would focus on? So I like spy themed entertainment, just like the next person. So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here. Um, and I think it can be a useful jumping off point to start to learn about the real world of intelligence. But I think there are a couple of really pervasive myths that come from entertainment that are detrimental to the intelligence business. Um, myth number one is that intelligence is secrets. Intelligence is not in the business of secrets, as you know. Intelligence is the business of insight. And I know we're going to talk about open source intelligence. But the more that people think that intelligence is only about secrets, the more they ignore or overlook really important aspects of the intelligence enterprise. I think the second pervasive myth is that intelligence is, as the old saying goes, a rogue elephant out of control that there's no oversight that these agencies are running amok. And that, of course, there have been dark chapters in our history of intelligence, but that's not the case. There's a there's a robust oversight regime. So I think those are the two big ones. Mm -hmm. okay. well, let's talk about your first point, because it's a point that we like to talk about a lot, which is um, if you think of one, to be fair, the traditional way the intelligence uh, uh, agency organized, funded, allocated resources, and two, also the way it's perceived, I think, in, in Hollywood and fiction, there, there's there's a pyramid where uh, um, at the top of the pyramid with sort of small amount of effort and resources is what would be characterized as, as the open source uh, 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 efforts. You know, what can you obtain by just looking at social media networks, looking at uh, broadcast television in uh, 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 countries, newspapers, uh, 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 reading speeches, you know, those sorts of things. And there, there's a widening of effort and resources all the way down to the base, which I would characterize as the classified or covert uh, uh, um, uh, uh, aspects of intelligence, where uh, people are, are encouraging uh, 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 local citizens in a host country to uh, uh, share secrets or share access to uh, 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 certain things uh, um, that are perceived to be uh, 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 secret, you know, for lack of a better word. When in effect, I think if you look at where the world of intelligence is moving, it's flipping that pyramid on its head where the vast majority of collection is going to happen in the open source uh, uh, realm. There'll be an, a set of analysis or insight uh, 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 applied to that open source by the analysts uh, uh, within the organization. And then there'll be a smaller amount of resources that will use classified means uh, and classified methods to obtain uh, information that either can't be uh, uh, collected through open source means or needs to confirm the open source collection 
uh, as to the truth. That's the way we see the world going. Uh, how does that resonate with you? I'm nodding my head vigorously. I completely agree with you. And I think that transformation, that inversion of the pyramid is both essential and, and incredibly difficult. Because as you know, working at Incutel, right. you know, these, you know, our intelligence community is used to operating in the, in the classified space. It's used to getting yeah. information clandestinely. It's used to producing intelligence products for people with clearances. So the open source revolution isn't just about collecting differently, and it's not just about analyzing differently. It's about producing differently. So right. intelligence needs to be produced increasingly for people who don't have clearances. So voters, for example, dealing with foreign uh, interference in elections or tech leaders trying to understand cyber threats to and through their systems. So it's, I think, a revolutionary challenge for the intelligence community to reimagine how it's going to operate in a more open source world. I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think you can look at the recent uh, 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 events around the conflict in Ukraine as evidence of, of that. Uh, uh, leading up to the invasion of the Ukraine, the United States took action that was very different from what the United States had done before in terms of briefing to the world, if you will, intelligence that it had about Russia, you know, and intelligence that it had about Russian uh, potential actions and intentions. In uh, uh, you know, for long-time observers and participants in the intelligence world, I think it struck all of us a little bit as, wow, that's different, that's new. And I think one of the key enabling reasons that uh, uh, the U.S. was able to do it in this case was a lot of that intelligence was gathered by open source methods. So you didn't have to worry, as you traditionally did, about burning your source, right? You know, like, hey, if we're going to disclose this piece of intelligence publicly and it came from somebody working for some foreign government somewhere, who took risk, you know, to to share that information with us? We don't want to burn that source. We don't want to uh, uh, cause them to be uh, uh, investigated and hunted down. But if this information has been collected through open source methods, uh, then it's a lot easier to share that information. And the U.S. actually used that uh, open source information to share it in ways that advanced its uh, strategic objectives. Absolutely, and I think you've hit on one of the key. Uh you know, benefits of open source, which is the shareability of information, not just with people outside the U.S., but across the U.S. government. So I spent two years, I have one chapter in the book um, where I, I focus on open source nuclear threat intelligence. And I spent two years on that one chapter. I think it's a really important set of issues. Yeah. And one of the things I found is the leaders in this open source community, including some of my colleagues at Stanford, really believe in what they're doing in, in large part because the, of the importance of shareability. And what they talk about is when something is so highly classified, and typically nuclear threats are highly classified, there are fewer eyes on the information. And that means that you don't get as, as good analysis uh, as, as you could. And so that shareability piece is key. But I want to say something else about the, the what you mentioned, Steve, about the declassification of intelligence with Ukraine. I think it's a crucial paradigm shift. And I think the context here of sharing it, let me start again. I think the context here is important because it's about information warfare. It's not just about intelligence. Yes. And so the declassification of intelligence was about getting the truth out before the lie. And the sequencing of information is important. When the truth comes out first, people are more likely to believe it. When the lie comes out first, people are more likely to believe it. So I think this strategy of uh, the U.S. government saying, don't believe what Vladimir Putin is about to tell you was a brilliant idea on a number of dimensions. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, another fantastic point. Uh, 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 we are in an era of information warfare. Uh, we are seeing uh, both adversaries, both China and Russia, I think, 
act in that way. Russia is probably more visible and advanced uh, 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 today in it, but China's playing catch up and, and, and becoming very good. And, and, and to your point, it's impossible to counteract that, uh, uh, those efforts by saying, that's not true, but we can't tell you, you know, uh, 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 what really is true because that's a secret and you're not clear for it, right? That's, that's just a very debilitating message uh, uh, to send out uh, 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 to, to anybody. And, and so I think we are, uh, uh, as you, you said, in this paradigm shift where uh, are experiencing a paradigm shift where the world of intelligence is going to have to be more openly discussed, you know, how this information was sourced, how it was uh, analyzed and why the conclusions uh, uh, were come to. You can also look at the uh, uh, all the different conspiracy theories in conversations around the origin of the uh, COVID virus uh, uh, um, as another example of, uh, uh, look, there were lots of different stories out there and the U.S. government initial reaction to that was, you know, just to make a blanket statement and not sort of offer any justification or background as to how it came to that conclusion. And that didn't carry the day uh, uh, with the uh, 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 worldwide public opinion, let alone the U.S. public opinion. So so uh, I think that was where the world's going. And to your point, it's a cultural shift that, you know, some of the agencies and some of the longtime practitioners are, are struggling with because that's not the way it always was. Have we seen any examples of this in, in Hollywood or, or fiction of people getting it right and and and, and demonstrating this? I, I I don't know the answer to this. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But if there are examples in Hollywood, it's a lone individual working against the evil bureaucracy in order to get the truth out, right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So um, uh, so moving on from uh, uh, the open source topic, uh, uh, let me ask you uh, because a lot of our listeners obviously care about uh, uh, what emerging technologies. Are coming that are important here. Uh, what do you see today that are, are the ones that the national security community should be paying the most attention to and adapting uh, 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 to to really uh, uh, support and uh, ex extend this trend that we've been talking about? That is such a critical question, Steve. I wish I had a really cogent answer. I think mm -hmm. it's important to realize that I don't think anybody has a clear answer. If you yeah. look at the list of critical technologies released by various government agencies, they're so broad as to be meaningless. It's all yeah. of AI, all of robotics, yeah. any emerging technology you can think of. Yeah. And so I think the implicit strategy here is that we have to compete on every technology everywhere in order to win. And I think yeah. that strategy is doomed to failure. And so the, one right. of the projects I'm working on now with a colleague named Herb Lynn, who's a physicist uh, here at Stanford, is how do we have a more segmented competition strategy? On what emerging technologies must we win? What parts of AI are the most important mm -hmm. to actually yep. be first? Where should we be fast followers? Where is it better to be second than first? And then right. there's a third category that to me is the most intriguing, which is on what emerging technologies should we be deliberately luring China into competing because they're competition traps, where China yep. will exert an enormous talent effort, political capital without marginal gain. And right. even better, what are competition traps where China knows their traps, but competes anyway, because of matters of prestige or bureaucracy? And I think we have some examples from history, but Herb and I are, de are delving deeply into specific technological areas to try to bucket those technologies into those three categories. I think that's fascinating. And the last category I hadn't really given a lot of thought of, but in uh, uh, the smart ass in me wants to say Bitcoin, but, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, I, I think or cryptocurrencies, but uh, or blockchain, I guess, you know, uh, but uh, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, there's a lot of interesting um, uh, uh, things to think about there. Uh, uh, 
And that's what I love about guests is when they make me, th me think. Let me throw out a couple areas uh, uh, that I've observed and, and get your reaction to them. First is, I think when you move to a world of great open source collection, uh, one of the challenges is most of that uh, intelligence is not in English. It's in the language of the host uh, 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 countries. And so one of the areas I think uh, uh, we as a community are, are, are challenged with is translation at large scale. You know, so if you're collecting a lot of Chinese or Korean or Russian documents, the ability to uh, uh, automatically uh, 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 translate those documents at scale, uh, 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 find the, the pieces of info in there that are actually pertinent uh, uh, to the intelligence mission and, and, and elevate them to such that a human could then take a look at them and, and, and apply the human brain to, uh, 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 to develop the insight. That's, uh, uh, I think, a real challenge uh, uh, for us. We're really good at collecting. We're not really good at translating. Uh, um, and, and so I think that's an area out there uh, uh, with a lot of some, some very interesting companies uh, uh, doing some good work uh, uh, there. The second uh, uh, area I would observe also is in the general area of collection platforms. You know, How do you collect when you're collecting for open source as opposed to uh, uh, when you're trying to collect for uh, uh, classified uh, uh, information? I think there is a difference in the types of platforms uh, uh, that you uh, create and operate uh, uh, to do that. And I think you, if you have to start with a mission, you know, in your head uh, uh, at the very beginning with a white sheet of paper as you build these platforms to to build the best platforms. And, and I think enough people are, are doing that. They're trying to sort of retrofit or optimize platforms built for classified collection to, to do open source collection. So, so I think those are two um, uh, areas that I, I would observe are interesting places to play. I, I don't know if you have any reactions to that. I would agree with you. I think one of the things that is often missing in the open source conversation is that this is an organizational ecosystem. So open source isn't just stuff. It's not just information that the IC needs to bring more into what it does. It's a set of organizations and individuals. And one of the questions is, where's the where's the belly button in the in the community for open source leaders, responsible open source leaders to access the classified world? How can we actually shape norms, standards, ethical uh, guidelines for open source um, collectors and analysts? Right now, this is a relatively benign environment. It's dominated by American and allied companies and individuals, but that's not going to stay that way. And if we look 10 or 20 years in the future, what does the open source world look like? It's going to be a lot less benign than it is today. Yeah. So how do we then shape those standards and training so that we have the most responsible players actually self-governing in a way that is advantageous to the United States. Yeah, I think those are some great points. So let's uh, move on to our, our next topic then. Uh, uh, obviously, your background is very deep in the cybersecurity uh, area. Uh, can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, the part that you think cybersecurity plays in great power competition? And, and we can talk a little bit about you know, some of the changes that we're seeing there. So I wish we had another hour. We could talk all about cyber. So I think, you know, it's interesting, Steve, because I looked back, you know, it's 10 years since cyber was listed in the top threats at the DNI annual threat assessment. And so I've spent some time thinking about what do we get right in cyber and what do we get wrong in cyber over the past 10 years? And the answer is, if you go back to that 2012 uh, Director of National Intelligence Threat Assessment, they identified cyber as a top threat and they identified the main actors in cyberspace, uh, focusing uh, particularly on Russia and China. But I think the cyber threat has morphed in ways that nobody anticipated. So the two big things that we collectively, academics, policymakers, intelligence officers, we got wrong. There are two big things we got wrong. One was that cyber would look like warfare as we knew it. 
that it would be big, it would be obvious, the threshold would be clear. Uh, Leon Panetta, when he was Secretary of Defense, talked about a cyber Pearl Harbor in 2012 that would lead to physical effects. And of course, we know if you fast forward five years from there, there was a cyber surprise in our election, uh, but it was hacking minds, not just machines. And so I think, yep. you know, so the first thing is cyber war would be obvious and it hasn't been obvious. It's been at the below the threshold of war. The second piece, which I just alluded to, is we focused on machines and not minds. And so the deception at scale that is enabled by cyberspace is something that's really new. Yes, we've had deception before, deceptions as old as espionage, but not at the speed and scale that we're confronting. And so I think those are emerging challenges in cyberspace. Right. Okay. And actually, they tie together, right? The whole deep fake issue yeah. is a cybersecurity issue, but it's also an open source uh, 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 collection and analysis uh, uh, issue as well. And, it, you know, it can uh, be very scary when you see some of these demos that we're all seeing right now of, 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 of these deep fakes. Uh, one of the things we haven't talked about necessarily is the relative abilities of different nations, you know, in these areas. Have you thought at all about, you know, where you think Russia is strongest in, where you think Russia is weakest in, China's strongest in, China's weakest in, weakest in and, and where the U.S. is as well, as we, we think about, you know, this competition that we're engaged with going forward here? Where do we need to get better and where do we need to be scared? I guess is the, the short version of that question. Well, I wish I had, I don't have access to enough classified information to be able yeah, to answer I, that question sufficiently. Yeah. Um, I can tell you just based on the unclassified world, there are a couple things I think that concern me. Number one, the U.S. is one of the most capable actors in cyberspace. We know that, but we're simultaneously yeah. one of the most vulnerable countries in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge is we have asymmetric vulnerability. Um, because we're so digitally connected and because we have such wide freedom of speech on the Internet. So we're inherently more vulnerable than other states. So North Korea hacks Sony Pictures. It's a national security incident. Uh, North Korea's Internet goes down and nobody notices because North Korea only had 28 websites at the time. Right. right. So that's number one. Yeah. I think number two is we operate by different norms. Right. And mm -hmm. so and, and we should operate by different norms. We're a democracy. We believe in the truth. We believe in the rule of law. So we're just not going to do some things that our adversaries are going to do. Yeah. So China, for example, we know is really good at stealing intellectual property. They've been robbing us blind for years. Uh, we, as you know, better than I do, the intelligence community does not conduct espionage on behalf of specific companies. We just don't do it. Some of our allies do, but we don't. And we're not going to. So I think there are some differences there, but with those differences also come advantages, right? So, you know, we have some, you know, you're, you're living one of the advantages, which is the innovation uh, ecosystem that we have in the United States yeah. and in particular in Silicon Valley. Um, and so that's an enduring strength, right? The freedom to innovate, the freedom to be wrong, the freedom to fail, I think is likely to be a, a long-term advantage for us in the cyber conflict. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a fantastic answer. And uh, you also start to touch on a point that I wanted to go to next, which is one of the ways we think about relative strengths and, and capabilities uh, of these uh, nations is by talent, you know, and where, you know, who is developing uh, uh, what talent and in, in, in which country. And as an educator, I'm sure that's uh, near and dear to your heart. Uh, uh, what do you think the U.S. can do better to develop the, uh, uh, the number of technical minds in the areas that we've, we've discussed here uh, 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 to really continue to be a, a, a worldwide leader you know, in these capabilities? So talent is near and dear to my heart. I will tell you that you know, I wrote this book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, because I wanted to teach a class at Stanford. And my real goal in teaching the class at Stanford is to encourage engineering students, and there are many of them here, to think yeah. about international security early in their careers 
which gets to the talent piece. I think there are a few things that the IC needs to do differently. Number one, they need to think about recruitment from a different frame. So recruitment in the IC is how can we fill this billet at this exact moment in time with this specific person? But what recruitment should be is how can we make sure that whoever is interested in applying for a job in the IC will support us for the rest of their lives, no matter where they end up. So, and this is particularly true of tech talent. So if they don't move into the IC, you want ambassadors, not just lifers inside. So that's a different frame of how you think about talent recruitment, which gets to point number two, which is do the small things right. And that starts with stop using fax machines in your recruitment efforts. (laughs) Nothing says we are in the dinosaur era for a tech an engineering major thinking about applying to a job in the intelligence community than having an agency say, why don't you fax us your information? Honest to goodness, you know, some of these agencies still use faxes. So stop doing that. It sends the wrong message. Um, And then third, I think, you know, we have to reduce the pain points. So clearances, I know Director Burns is really focused on this. Clearances take too long, especially with tech talent. They have lots of different offers, lots of different opportunities. You can't make them wait that long to walk in the door. Um, I actually think one of our strategies needs to be, and I proposed this before, um, that we need a fellowship program that's like a White House Fellows program for the top 50 engineering students graduating across the country. But the key to making something like that work is to understand, as you know, living in the Valley, Young engineers care about their peers. It's their peer network that really matters. And if you have the top engineering students, wherever they end up in this cohort of this program for a year working inside, even if they don't end up becoming lifers and they go to Google or they go to startups, their friends are influenced by their experience. And that's a way to to win hearts and minds across different uh, companies and industries. I think that's a great point. Uh, uh, I think it'd be a fantastic program, but to your second point, uh, uh, we need to fix the clearance process first, or otherwise they won't be able to do anything in that one year because <laughs> they will be waiting for the clearance to come through. So uh, I think we've exceeded our time here, which happens when we have a great conversation. So thank you very much. I always like to offer my guests uh, uh, two things. First, uh, uh, is there anything else that you wish you had a chance to mention in this conversation that you haven't? Uh, such a great question. Uh, I No, I think you covered it a, a lot of territory very quickly. Okay, great. And then secondly, uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work if they get intrigued by uh, what they uh, are hearing here? Is there anything you're currently working on that you want to highlight or you know, a website or a blog post uh, uh, that, that you publish? Uh, where, where should they look for more? Uh, so, um, so this uh, Competition Traps project, stay tuned for that. Uh, I would just uh, suggest two other things. I do tweet about uh, Stanford sports and intelligence issues on Twitter. Um, And then uh, I co-chair a group at Hoover that's really looking at the intersection of these issues called the Technology, Economics and Governance Working Group. And I co-chair it with economist John Taylor. uh, And we're having a lot more speaker series and events and things. And so if people want to engage uh, in our work, we would welcome them. Terrific, terrific. And I'll be at the Stanford football game this weekend. So we'll see if they can actually pull off a win. <laughs> so, Hope springs right, eternal. <laughs> well, exactly. All right. Thank you, into, thank you all for turning, uh, tuning in to today's episode of The Intersection. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast so you don't miss out on the future content. And leave us a review or comment to let us know what you think or what content you'd be interested to see us cover on a future podcast. I'd also encourage you to check out the IQT's website, www.iqt.org to explore more content about cutting edge technology to support 
and deliver insights and capabilities essential for national security mission impact. As always, we're all about the intersection of uh, national security and technology. And please uh, 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 thank you, Amy, for taking the time here to join us in the conversation. I think our listeners will be fascinated by what they get to hear. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. Produced by HeartCast Media.